Welcome to So You Want to Be a Copywriter, brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses. You can find out more about our copywriting courses at writerscentre.com.au slash copywriting. Now over to Bernadette. Charging the right fee for your copywriting services can be a hit and miss affair. Some people charge thousands and have no trouble finding clients. Others charge a pittance and can't get a sale. What's the difference? Well, here's the thing. It's not what you charge, it's how you charge. And I've covered all the top questions I get about pricing here in this podcast. I've worked on some really big projects like the launch of Optus in Australia, and I've worked on tiny little projects like one-page flyers and one-page websites. So no matter what quoting issue you have, I've probably faced it myself. And I've condensed all that experience here in this podcast and the rate card, which you can also download in the notes and it's all yours for the taking. Without a doubt, the number one question I get asked with copywriting is what should I charge for my work? So I thought I'd dedicate this podcast to actually helping you understand what you should charge for your work. Because I think it's fair to say that we don't do this for free. It's not a charity. It's a career and it's a well-paid career if you charge correctly. And what I'll say from the get-go too is that a lot of people work for free at the beginning, and I'm fully supportive of that. I I did as well, and I think it's a really nice thing to do, particularly if you don't feel confident, if you feel that you uh, can't justify the work that you're you're putting forward, that you don't know if you're going to get the results that you're saying you can. So for all sorts of reasons, if you just really want to just dip your toe in the water, working for free is great. However, let me add this too, that when you put all that work into a piece of copy, and you don't charge for it. I would say it's exactly the same piece of copy you're presenting to the client if you were charging for it anyway. So the only difference between the work is the mentality behind it, is the belief behind it that it's worthy of being paid for. So it is a mental mindset. So the sooner you can move from free to fee, the better, and it is only up to you. You know, the client won't notice any different in the quality of the work is what I'm saying as well. So there's a couple of ways to charge for your work. First one is by the word. And in general, in copywriting, we don't do that, right? You think about just do it or, you know, oh, what a feeling. That's not a fantastic way to make a living as a copywriter for dollars a word. You know, let's say it's a dollar a word. It is really the province of journalism and feature writing and all those kinds of things, which is completely fine. And uh, But with copywriting, we tend to move towards more of a package fee or a project fee, which I'll talk more about in a moment. The word uh, word fee can actually work really well when it's a big word count. So if you're doing 50,000 words or 60,000 word projects, by all means, a word count is fantastic because, or a cost per word, because it's really easy for the client to get their head around it. It's easy for you to get your head around it. Um, and it just becomes a one-liner. You know, I charge X per word. And don't forget the GST if you charge that as well. So the word fee can work if it is a reasonable word volume. Now, let's talk about by the hour. Now, the way that would work is you'd say, okay, I charge $80 an hour. It's a five-hour project. Therefore, it's $400. And it's really the $400 that the client's interested in. In general, they're not that interested in how many hours it takes you. All they care about is, did the job get done? 
So when the, where the hourly rate does come into play is for yourself. So you might be thinking, well, how long will this thing take? You reckon it's going to take five hours. Well, if I charge myself at 80, I'm comfortable with 80 for myself, then it's a $400 job. If you think I really value myself at $50 an hour, well, then it's $250. So you have to work out what you value yourself at simply to get to the project fee. So don't um, feel you have to oblige the client by telling them your hourly rate because they will ask simply because they may not have any other model by which to, to value you on. But when they say, what's your hourly rate? You can slightly direct the conversation to say, well, what you're probably interested in is the overall fee uh, so that you can you know, budget and allocate your, your funding. And then you could also say, well, actually, I don't charge by the hour and keep it as simple as that as well. And so I charge by the fee. And they go, oh, yeah, right. So they'll only take you at face value. They'll take you at what you say to them. So don't feel you have to reveal your hourly rate at all. The other problem with hourly rates, if you do go down that route, is you can only earn so much per hour. You know, So if you think about um, eight hours a day, let's say $100 an hour, that's $800 an hour, $800 a day, which is fine, right? But maybe you don't want to do by the day, like you're turning up to someone's office to work for eight hours and they're, they're charging you out at that fee. You know, you may want to be able to earn more than $800 a day because you feel that the work you do is more valuable than just $100 an hour. And you could do it in two hours. And therefore, that's on your side, right? You 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 are the winner of that particular ratio. There will be other occasions when it takes you 15 hours and, you, and you've only charged 10 and you aren't the beneficiary on that side of the ratio. So, you know, there's swings and roundabouts when you do it by the hour, but I don't recommend you do it. Um, in terms of a daily rate, that's a different story. I will talk about that a bit later. But in terms of hourly, I really recommend that you just do it by the project. The project fee is, as it suggests, you work at your hourly rate and you times it by the number of hours you're working on it, and then you add whatever extra bits you need on top, and then you give them that fee. Now, don't forget with your briefing, you need to charge for the hours that you spend on your briefing. You need to charge for the research that you spend on doing the job. You need to spend uh, time on the writing of the piece. You need to do revisions to the piece and any kind of phone calls, etc. There might be things like overheads, e.g. You know, your printer, your internet, any kind of petrol that you might need to go and do whatever you need to do. So do know that whatever hourly rate you charge yourself at in terms of the whole project fee, all those costs have to be included or else you are you know, you're losing money. So don't forget to include those incidentals as well. And in terms of the, the project fee, there's all sorts of different projects and different fees that you can use. And there is a price guide that we have. So I'll talk more about that in the in the notes of the podcast as to how you can get access to the rate guide. But it's got probably 15 to 20 items of uh, mediums from blogs to emailers to video scripts to flyers uh, to SEO, etc. And I've detailed what you could charge for those particular pieces. So if you're struggling to work out what you can charge, do check out that particular guide. It'll give you a really nice matrix as to how you can um, charge for the work that you do. And just know that you 
it's backed up, right? This is industry rates. And I'll talk more about industry rates in a minute as well. But you can feel confident knowing that it's backed, right, by industry practitioners. And this is this is standard fees for what they charge. The other option is a retainer. And the concept of a retainer is that you fix a fee and then you charge that every month and you do a certain amount of work per month. Now, the upside of a retainer is that you don't have to keep finding new clients. Let's say you charge $3,000 a month, for example, and you know that come hell or high water, as long as you do the work, you're going to get $3,000 in your pocket every month. And let's say you had four clients, that's $12,000 a month. That's fine, right? You can just do that work and you don't have to do any new business development. You don't have to pitch. You don't have to worry about new people coming into your system. You just know that's the work you do every month. For a lot of copywriters, that's really attractive because they don't like the new business development. They find that quite stressful. Um, the other upside is that you get to know the clients really well. They trust you. They let you run. You do your thing. You don't have to have a lot of contact and you might have frequent meetings, but you don't have to be talking all the time. So again, your time is used wisely because you are doing the work that you know and love, right? You're not always having to justify the work that you've just written. On the downside, and this is I wouldn't even call it a downside. It's just a personality thing. Some people don't really like being beholden to a client. They go, you know, I don't like knowing that I have to put in 10 hours of work a week or this month for this client. I like the random nature of my work. I like the spontaneity. I don't like being beholden to someone. So for those reasons, they they don't like the the nature of it, you know, the, the sense of the the, the edges around the project have to be fixed and they don't like that. They rather take what they what comes and they can therefore make their decision as to whether they work with that client or not. Or they might want to take time off and they don't want to be beholden. But there's ways around that too. So if you do have a retainer client and you want to take time off, you either tell the client and you suspend the work for a couple of months or whatever time frame, or you give it to a trusted supplier of yours and they take over. Or you may be... Um, create a volume of content so that it will be used while you're gone so that you don't actually have to get anyone in to do your work. So there's a couple of ways in which you can get over those little humps of, of being a, uh, on a retainer basis. Now let's talk about award rates and industry standards because that often gets used as um, a reason as to why you charge a certain thing. You say, well, that's industry standard. I have news for you, right? There is no real industry standard. There is and there isn't. Let me let me put it this way. If you were to charge a client, let's say $100 an hour or $500 for the project, that client generally hasn't got a clue, right, what you should charge unless they've interviewed three other copywriters and they've all given him or her a basic ballpark. But this person potentially has never hired a copywriter before. They have no idea what you charge. So they can only go on what you say. So I really want you to have a lot of freedom to charge whatever you like, whether that's way above what this rate card that I've got here um, might say, because it is between you and the client. It is a very personal relationship and they're not going to go, well, I just heard on the grapevine that copywriters like you charge $80 an hour. Or if they do, then you can say, well, the reason I'm different is because, and therefore you have to justify your fee anyway. But don't feel that there's this, sort of invisible knowledge out there that everyone's working towards, that they all know that it's $80 to $120 an hour that copywriters work for, because that's not 
the case if these people have never dealt with a copywriter before. Now, if they have dealt with copywriters before, sure, they might have an understanding. And that's when you say to them, well, what's your understanding of, you know, your, the charges? What, what, what would you expect to pay? So you can work your way around that to find out what their expectations are. But just know that you, you shouldn't feel hemmed in by the fees that I've actually provided in this rates guide because it is completely up to you what you charge. Like, for example, let's say you've got a financial background. You've been a stock trader or your hedge fund or whatever it might be, and you're really, really good at it, and you happen to be really good at writing as well. And someone comes to you and says, look, we're launching an IPO, initial public offering for this new startup. It's a fintech. And we want you to write the bid document. We want you to write the deck for our investment pitch. Um, and we're going to you know, probably get 20 million investors coming through. And we're going to pay you industry standard rates, which is $80 an hour. You're thinking, hang on a tick. I spent 20 years in stock markets and 10 years in hedge trading and 15 years in arbitrage. You know, my time is valuable and my knowledge is valuable as well. So on those occasions, for example, you can charge whatever you like, I would think, because the value of what you're bringing is huge. If you don't succeed, they fail. So their whole million-dollar offering falls on its face. So on those occasions, you should not feel obliged to fit within industry standards because what you're doing is is kind of unique um, and it's very much skill-based and the rewards that they receive from your efforts are huge. Therefore, the pressure you're under to deliver is huge as well. So therefore, your fee needs to be commensurate with that pressure. So that's a long-winded way of saying that there is no real standard industry rates. Having said that, right, if you feel that you don't know what to charge, right, and you don't want to embarrass yourself or put your foot in it or feel in any way that you're undercharged or overcharging, by all means, use the rate card. And you can use that as a guide to know that if someone was to challenge you, you could say, well, actually, that is industry standard if you want to go down that track, right? So that just gives you a backup to know if you're completely floundering as to what you should be charging, the rate guide is there for you. But by all means, charge what you like and what the market will bear. A lot of people wonder, what should they charge starting out, you know, as a copywriter versus what should they charge maybe three years in or five years in? Um, And the, the industry standard has been around years in the business. For example, like a junior copywriter is maybe one to two years, a midweight is three to five, and a heavyweight or senior is five plus. That's true for agencies. And this, I do want to make the distinction about charging for your work. Agency, advertising agencies charge on a very different basis to what you might be doing as a freelancer. And this is for freelancers, this particular podcast. So this is not about what an agency would do. It's about what you would do. And I sincerely believe that if you've come to copywriting and you've had existing experiences in wine or travel or parenting or social work or teaching or finance, whatever industry you might have come from, when you write copy for that industry, you bring with you those 5, 10, 15 years of experience. Okay, not all as copywriting, but in expertise and authority. Therefore, that has value. And therefore, to say that you've only been copywriting for a year and therefore you should charge these low rates, to me, doesn't make sense because you've got all this knowledge. Okay, 
as I said, copywriting might be new to you, but if you've done my courses or you've done any kind of course, chances are you've got the gist of it. You're probably going to be better than others who haven't had those 15 years in that experience in that industry. So you shouldn't be charging as a junior, right? So the way I like to see it and the way I've structured the rate card is to say there's three levels of confidence. Okay, the first one is starting out and then the second one is feeling good and the third one is confident. So it's immaterial how many pieces you've created or how long you've been a copywriter, but it's more about you and how you feel about your abilities. So for example, the starting out self-belief mantra would be something like, I don't feel confident. I don't want to put myself under pressure yet. I've written maybe one to five pieces. Now, even that last piece about one to five pieces is kind of hard to pin down because you might've written 15 reports in your career and three newsletters and six blogs, right? Just for your work. So what does a piece actually mean? So I really just want you to start connecting with your feeling about your experience and whether you are. And also this might change depending on the client you're talking to. So if you're talking to a client that you've never worked with before in any kind of capacity, you might feel like you're on you're on starting out modality. Whereas if you talk to someone who has been in your industry and you've been doing that work for 15 years, you are definitely not on the starting out rung. You're on the confident rung. So you can mix and match your confidence levels based on the person you're talking to. And the second rung is feeling good. Okay. And the way I describe that is I feel nervous, but excited. I know I can do it. I've written five to 15 pieces for friends, clients, and work. So that's more of a, you've got this sense of nervousness and excitement, but on the other hand, you're feeling pretty confident that you can you can do this, you know, that you're going to be better than others who haven't had this kind of experience that what you've had. So that's the feeling good rate. And then the confident rate is I am a confident copywriter and I've written 15 plus pieces for friends, clients and work. I'm ready to rock. So that's when you can use the upper rate as your guideline. So the point about this is You can charge whatever you like, but if you don't know what to charge, you can follow these guidelines and you can use them as a starting point. And then from there, it depends on the conversation you have with the client, okay? And they will give you a guide as to what they can afford. I often get asked, should I work for free, you know, working as a copywriter? And I think there's, I I touched on this at the beginning, but I think there's real merit in doing that if you feel um, you have lack confidence or you don't feel justified and been able to take money for the work that you do. I totally get that because if I was a hairdresser and I was just starting out and, you know, I hadn't done it before, I I would feel bad about taking people's money for cutting their hair when I've never really done that. So, but what I would say is don't linger too long in that, in that uh, free area. And also just know that eventually you will want to charge for your work. So the sooner you can move into that world of free, so fee rather, move into that world, then you will never go back to the free world, okay? So the sooner you can believe that what you've got is valuable, then the sooner you can start being paid. And then you go, okay, that's not much different to what I was doing when I was doing it for free. So it's just really my mindset that needs to change, not so much about the work I'm actually producing or even what the client's expecting. I would also say that in my experience, and I've coached 10,000 students, that's a lot of people, that most people are better than they think. You know, that sense of I'm not good enough or I should have worked harder on this piece or whatever it might be. In general, it's better than what the client can do 
And it's better than what other people who've never had any training can do. And even people who've been in copy running but haven't had any training but have just sort of picked it up on the way, they don't have a structure, right? So they can't even assess the, the quality of their work because they don't even know what they're assessing it against. So just by having some training can make a huge difference to your own confidence to say, look, I've got no one else to run this by, but if I just sort of assess it based on the training that I've had and some of the guidelines that I've been given, then you know you are in a better position than if you hadn't done the training, than if you hadn't assessed it against those guidelines. Because we're never going to be able to have someone against sitting with us every single time to assess our copy to give it to the client. It's just not feasible, particularly in the freelance world. By all means, get a buddy to help you, but that's not always going to be there. So at some point, you're going to have to have that confidence in yourself to go, "I, I believe this is good enough. I've done the work, I've done the briefing, I've let it sit, you know, 24 to 48 hours, if not longer. I've reread it, I've read it out loud. Um, I've, I've followed all those guidelines in the briefing document. I feel that this is probably the best that I can do right now. Then let it go, right? Just let it go and see what happens with the client. So don't um, labor too long, like I said, in the free world, because you will eventually have to charge. And the sooner you do, the more seriously you'll take it. Um, and also you'll just be able to get paid so that you can feel the rewards of your efforts as well. What I will say in terms of maximizing your earnings is write what you know and um, start with a topic that you feel comfortable with. And you might be thinking, well, I've been a teacher for 15 years. I don't want to keep writing about the education system. That's why I'm getting out of it. So, well, that's all well and good. But if you do need the money and you do want to resign and you do feel a bit stressed, then my recommendation is to start with what you know, because two thirds of the job is being done for you, which is the research. It's understanding the market, understanding the audience, understanding the world that you're in. You've got all that. All you got to work out is the copywriting bit, right? You probably think, well, that's the majority of it, right? But still, you've got this really strong knowledge underpinning your, your writing as well. If you compare that to, say, writing for... I don't know, the superannuation system where you know nothing, that's tough, right? You don't even know what base level is. You don't even know what, you know, is standard, what's just even accepted wisdom. So that's making life really difficult for you. So my recommendation is start with what you know, get some runs on the board, get paid, get that confidence up, get those credentials, get your process sorted, and then step out and think, I now want to write for fashion or I want to write for you know, the lost dog's home, or I want to write for, you know, a sporting club, whatever it is that that floats your boat. But just do so knowing that you've already paid your dues to some degree, and you've got your internship or your, um, um, you know, you've got your, your runs on the board. So you might be thinking, well, where do I start? How do I know who to write for to begin with? Well, I love the hedgehog complex or the concept, as Jim Collins called it. And Jim Collins wrote a book called Good to Great. And I just find this um, process really invaluable for my students because they're often floundering as to where they begin. So if you think about three circles, right, and they're all overlapping and in the middle, there's a sweet spot where all the three circles overlap. And the first one is, what do you love? Like, what do you just love doing? What do you read about? What do you spend your time thinking about? What would you do if you didn't have to be paid? You know, where would you spend your time? It might be the books on your bedside table. It might be the courses you attend. It might be the festivals that you attend. What is it? You know, is it food? Is it wine? Is it meditation? Is it yoga? Is it dogs? Is it writing? Is it fashion? Is it money? You know, what is it that you just love doing? And then the other circle is, what are you really good at, right? 
What do you naturally gravitate to that is easy for you? What's effortless? What do people say? You're really good at that. You know, so just have a think about what that is. And the third circle is the economic engine. Like what industry would pay you to do this particular thing, right? So, um, I mean, most industries will pay, right? And that's the good thing about copywriting is no matter what your topic is, chances are there's a company that makes that or provides that service. So you, you can always be reassured that no matter what your passion or niche is, there's going to be an industry behind it. So if you think about those three things and look at the sweet spot, where do they all overlap? That's the area you want to be focusing on as a copywriter. And I'll give you an example. One of my students who I went through this exercise with, and she was really into food and travel and wine. And But that's a pretty big industry, food, wine, and travel. They've been three major industries. And most people think, oh, I couldn't possibly get paid to work in my passion. It's like, well, maybe you could if you really narrowed it down and you got really focused on what that industry could be. So we narrowed it down. She said, look, wine is probably my thing. I, I love wine. I know a lot about it. I drink a lot of it. Um, and I've also worked in wine in the past. So that became her focus. And she knew that she was good at it because she you know, spent time in that industry, but it was just, she loved it. And she thought, well, what industries would pay me? Well, what about wine companies, right? So she went for one uh, on a seek.com ad and she got the job. I won't reveal the industry or the, the, the company now, but she got a major wine company in Australia. And the last time I spoke to her, she was in South Australia on the side of a hill on a wine estate, drinking wine and working as her in-house copywriter. And I meant all power to you because you went for it. You believed that you could get it and you did. So you got to start broad, right? Think about all those ideas that I just mentioned, then narrow it right down into what could be the one industry, the one topic, the one company that you could actually work for and go for it. And just know it's really, really possible. I often get asked, should I work with clients that I don't really find ethically appropriate? And that's always a good question. And everyone's ethics are quite different. You know, what one person thinks is ethical, another may think is unethical. So I'm not here to comment on what those industries might be because everyone's different. But what I will say is that you have to live with yourself, right? You have to go to bed at night and sleep on your pillow. And I guess the guiding principle that I've used is if I'm good at what I do and I work with this company and I help them sell more of what they're selling, am I okay with that? Am I okay with helping this company be better at what they do so they can get more of this out to the world? You know, so that would be my litmus test for whether I can work with this company. Am I happy with that? Um, you know, helping them be better at what they do so they can sell more of it. So that's the way I, I approach these things. But everyone's got different standards and guidelines and ethics. And also everyone's got different financial situations. You know, I, I tell you this story this many years ago, an actor friend of mine, well-known actor, but he was a bit older. He was fell on hard times. He didn't have a lot of money. He was asked to do a TV commercial for a very big fertilizer company. And he was aghast, right? Because he was quite an environmental um, oriented man. He understood, you know, things about the environment that he felt were dangerous and he felt that this fertilizing company was dangerous. But he was so poor at the time, he had no option. He took it and he became the face of this very big fertilizer brand. He made a lot of money, right? 
um, and it got him through uh, those couple of very, very tough years. He needed to do what he needed to do. But he looked back and he was really embarrassed, you know, that he did it because his face was attached to it for many years. And he wished he hadn't done it, but he kind of knew why he did it because he needed the money at the time because he was very, very broke. So, you know, ours is not a position to judge. We just have to let people do what they do and just know that we all have to find our own pathway through it. Um, So, yeah, there's just a few ideas to consider, right, as to how you can make your moral judgments. There's another element to this is about what about the people you work with? What if you don't like the people? The, The company's fine and the product's ethical and all that kind of stuff. You just don't like the people. That sure happens. I'm sure I've worked with people I haven't really enjoyed over the years, right? But as you get more experienced, you can become a bit pickier, a bit more selective as to who you do work with. So that's the good thing about sticking in and copywriting for a while because you can start to pick and choose who you want to work with. And also you get better at spotting the trouble of some people before you actually move into it. So my advice on this is don't discount people instantly just because you don't have rapport with them because there's all sorts of dynamics at play at the beginning of a relationship you're not quite sure why they're doing what they're doing but even in the early stages of your career i personally think it's not a bad thing to work with people that kind of rub you up the wrong way or give you a hard time or make life a bit difficult now i'm not saying make it so bad for you that you can't sleep at night and you're stressed and you're losing your hair, right? I don't mean that. I just mean sometimes it's good to extend yourself in who you work with so that you can get really resilient and get really used to all sorts of different people so that you can move through your process, get these people on side, understand what makes them tick and be better at influencing them so that the repertoire you have to manage these difficult people expands. Because if you only work with people you like, you only work with people that make life easy for you, well, that might limit your choices a little and it might limit your learning earning potential. And also it might just limit your learning potential as well as to how you can manage difficult people. I've managed some really difficult people over the years. I work for very interesting people, big personalities, multimillionaires, zero boundaries in terms of what they think they can ask of anybody. And mostly I've learned more from them on a good side than I have on the negative, right? I'm not saying I would work for these people all the time, but by doing so and moving through those experiences, it makes working with 90% of the population so much easier because I've learned my skills on how to manage difficult people. So don't discount difficult people instantly. Um, See what you can learn from the situation. Because often you'll learn more from these negative situations than you were from the positive situations. And I will add a caveat here that if you are so upset and you are so distraught and so broken and your confidence is shattered by the experience, walk away quickly. Okay, now you may need to get into it a little bit to have that happen to you, but if it does happen to you, walk away. Nothing is worth that. Um, So it is a balance between you knowing what you can take, knowing what skills you need to develop to become more resilient versus this is toxic and this is never going to work and this is never going to serve you in any way. So only you can make those calls as well. So there's a couple of ideas on you know, how to decide who you work with and who you don't. The other 
question I get asked a lot is about insurance. So I just want to cover these few things off because they all sort of fall into the same category. Because I had a student just email me recently saying she's been asked about her insurance, how much she's got, you know, how much she's insured for. And she's like, I've never been insured. I don't even know what to consider. So there's a couple of things here. Um, and again, I'm not an insurance advisor, so please don't sue me. I'm not an accountant, so please don't sue me. Right. So this is completely unqualified financial advice. Uh, but I can just tell you what I've seen over the years. For the most part, freelance copywriters, again, depending on what they work with and who they work with, don't have insurance, right? Because the work they do goes to the client, the client approves it or not, and then the client is responsible for publishing it, e.g. they put it out to the public, they put it on social media, they put out the ad, they put out the TV commercial. So the copywriter is the beginning person in the process, but they're not the end person. They don't even see the end product sometimes, so they can't even control how that piece gets used. On those occasions, if you know that you are not the publishing copywriter, you know, not the agency who's responsible for putting content out there, sometimes you don't need insurance. It's just an excess that you don't really need to, to worry about. Again, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an insurance advisor, so you do need to look at your own conditions. Um but don't feel it's just a standard that you must have without even thinking it through, right? Um, with this woman I was just mentioning, I said to her, okay, who's the client? Like you really need to know who's asking because I asked her about her insurance um, position. Turns out it was a major authority, right, in the water sector. So publicly listed company, government-based, blah, blah, blah. They There's no way they're going to deal with anyone who hasn't got insurance, so when you know that, you think, okay, then what you say to them, if you haven't already got insurance, is I will take out whatever insurance you need me to get once I've got the job. They go, okay. Now, they they might say, we can't give you the job until you've proven your certificate of currency, right? So that gets into that weird world where you haven't quite got the job, but you need to prove your credentials just to get it. If that's the case, I'd recommend that you take out um, the required insurance is for a couple of months on a monthly basis, so monthly premiums, and then you see if you get the job. If you get the job, you continue paying your monthly premiums. If you don't get the job, you cancel it. So you've had to spend a couple of hundred dollars potentially on those monthly premiums just to bid for the work, but that's just the cost of doing business. So there's that scenario. Um, if you are constantly doing work for government authorities, big you know, blue chip companies, uh, public leaders to companies, they will absolutely insist that you have insurance and therefore you're just better off um, getting your premiums paid, doing it on a monthly basis and just knowing you're covered and therefore you don't have to think about it. And there are insurance advisors out there and I personally would recommend that you hire an insurance person to take care of it for you. They take care of all the paperwork, all the headache and you just pay your premium. You still have to do your due diligence. You know, you have to read your documents and things like that. But that person's doing it all for you. That person gets a, a commission from Allianz or whoever the insurance company might be. But you don't pay that, right? That just comes out of the Allianz commission. Um, so it's a zero cost to you. You're going to pay it whether you pay it direct to Allianz or you pay it direct to the insurance advisor. I highly recommend you choose an insurance advisor. And as I said, Allianz is something a company I've worked with over the years have been fine. So, but you probably will need uh, professional indemnity and public liability. 
they're two separate things. One is professional indemnity, which is more about if you do or say something that's incorrect and people get hurt from that, um, then that's that kind of insurance. But public liability is more if someone comes onto your property and they fall and they hurt themselves, then you're covered for that as well. So kind of different types of insurance. So it, it can get a bit complicated, but just keep it really simple. Just ask the client what kind of insurances they require, the value of them. They'll seem excessive, like $10 million for this and $50 million for that. That's not a big deal in the insurance world. It's pretty standard. So don't get freaked out by that. Try and get your insurance advisor to help you and um, take it out for as many months as you need. If you don't get the job, cancel it. And even though, even if you do get the job and the job finishes six months later, you can cancel it after that as well. So you don't have to keep paying it if you're not actually working for those companies. However, I will add, if you do cancel it and then a year down the track, some kind of litigation occurs, then, and you're not covered, you could be held liable without the cover because the cover needs to extend until the time when the actual litigation occurs. And this has not happened to me, by the way. I sound like I know what I'm talking about, and I do, but it hasn't happened to me. But I have heard that from insurance companies that you do need to have had that insurance in place when the actual litigation occurs, which could be many years after the actual event happened. So it can get complicated. I don't want to make it complicated for you. For the most part, most people don't need it, but do take it on a case-by-case basis. So there you have it. There's my podcast for the day on money, charging, insurance, and all those other things that make up being a copywriter. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about how to become a professional copywriter and get the confidence to charge more for your work, check out our courses at writercenter.com.au forward slash essentials or join our community of copywriters at copyclub.com.au. As always, I'll finish with a dad joke. But I did learn this week that it's inappropriate to make a dad joke if you're not a dad. Apparently, it's a faux pas. (laughs) And as always, a motivational quote to leave you with, do something today your future will thank you for. All the best. I'm Bernadette. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Copywriter. You'll find the show notes at soyouwanttobeacopywriter.com.au or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news, where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions, and much more. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre.